0: Welcome back to Design Pod with me, Hamish Kilburn. In case you're wondering, hosting this podcast is not my only job, although it does take up a lot of commitment. Outside of this wonderful creative space, I work as the editor of Hotel Designs, which is a publication that produces hotel reviews, the latest news around global hotel development, exclusive interviews, and these days, heaps of immersive content. It often therefore feels like I have the best job in the world, and I'm so grateful for that feeling. The best part of my job, though, isn't checking into the spectacular hotels around the globe, although that is a lovely perk that has allowed me to harness my signature hotel handstands. In case you didn't know, I document my travel on two hands and then post about it all over Instagram. (laughs) The best part of my job, truthfully, Is meeting the people who are behind the design the architecture and the development decisions i therefore find myself regularly in the company of legends just like this week's special guest sue timney's career is one that many could only dream of So she started off as a textiles designer, then soon found herself being commissioned to design people's homes. Her big black book of contacts is insane, having designed spaces for the McCartneys, Sam Mendes and many others. She's also won huge corporate deals with the likes of House of Fraser, M&S, And she appeared on Grand Designs, where she was asked to convert a water tower in Kensington into a comfortable luxury home. And the deadlines for that project were crazy. She talks about it all in this episode. So I caught up with Sue virtually from her Riverside home in London to try and capture what more than 30 years of design looks and more importantly, feels like for her. Here's the interview. Sue Timney, welcome to Design Pod. How are you?
1: I'm good, thank you. This is wonderful.
0: Oh, it's so nice to see you. Yeah,
1: yes, absolutely.
0: Wonderful. Where in the world are you right now?
1: Um, I'm by the River Thames.
0: Oh, you're in London. In a
1: brutalist building that uh, I moved into in August, and it's nearly finished. But of course, being a designer doing interiors. My home comes last.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Describe your home to us. I mean, our audience, obviously, our listeners can't see, but behind Mm. you, you've got some beautiful um, artwork going on. You've got a lovely little gold light above you. Yeah.
1: Matching your
0: fashion sense perfectly right now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, Well, I suppose it's what I would call one of the most beautiful settings you can have in London. It's right by the river. It overlooks nothing except water and trees on the other side of the Thames and it's West London and um, it's a brutalist building. So um, a mix of all sorts of incongruous elements that actually provide the most gorgeous mood I think.
0: Yeah and just amazing for inspiration I can imagine as well.
1: It is the light so, is incredible.
0: Absolutely well that, do you know what it starts with natural light and, and landscape and then everything mm. else kind of just builds on into that for sure um so Sue tell us about your experience your or over 30 years experience I hope you don't mind me saying that um oh how it's
1: have things more than that actually. more than that
0: <laughs> <laughs> how are things changed in that time I mean culturally politically working in this industry Mm. what was it like going into it and and what was it that sort of really sort of spurred you on to becoming an interior designer in the first place
1: oh do you know well to answer your last question first because Mm. it's sort of a logical chronological answer the 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 thing that spurred me into interiors was producing textiles at the very beginning after leaving the Royal College of Art and setting up a studio that had a live print table that that um, clients could come into, buy directly from. Um, And that was in Portobello, a very inspirational area really for me and, and very important area in my whole life. And from that, people came in, bought things, we covered sofas, or everything from fashion to interiors, sort of the, the beginning of lifestyle actually. Um, mm-hmm. And from there, I was asked to go and look at people's homes. They liked the style that the shop exuded. And before long, hey presto, I was beginning to be commissioned to do whole houses. And so my training as a fine artist and a printmaker, came through in textiles and interiors.
0: And have you, were you always doing it on your own? Or were you
2: connected I, to it?
1: A... No, I started with my partner, Graham Fowler, who was my oh. husband. And uh, we had the beginning of a young family. It grew to four children in the end. And then in, in a, about the millennium, we, we split as a company and I carried the company on, Timney Fowler oh, wow. and Sue Timney which was the um, interior practice.
0: And how have things changed culturally um, and politically, I guess, being being a a (laughs) woman in the interior design industry, it feels as if we are a very progressive industry, but there's always been inequality in our our industry as in in, any industry. And, (laughs) um, you know, people have to work harder, when you started i imagine it must have been quite difficult to prove yourself as um as as credible
1: do you know i have to admit i've never been majorly conscious i am much more now but at the start i wasn't so majorly conscious here i am a working woman mother and i was a single mom at the very beginning Mm. um you know how I wasn't that conscious I was at a disadvantage. I was so immersed actually in my world, Um, keeping my family together, making money to do that and enjoying every minute of the journey that I didn't actually feel hard done by. Mm. I look back now and see that it's still pretty hard for a lot of women um, certainly in the world, but within interiors less so, I would say, because there is more of a culture of women and it's much more accepted. So that's wonderful. But at the beginning, when I started, I think it must have been tough, but I just kept my head down and didn't look um, or, or compare myself. Actually, I was really so immersed in, in the whole idea of building a wonderful company.
0: And I guess, I mean, when, when we look at diversity um, and, you know, women within design, it's very easy to see the numbers and see that, you know, it's, there are more women in interior design than perhaps other industries like architecture. Yeah. Yeah. However, there is certainly a lack of um, women who are in leadership positions. And I just yeah. feel someone like you who's sort of, you know, proven your individual DNA, you know, that, that is you, you are the brand. Do you feel now a sense of responsibility to kind of champion that or is it just a natural process that you've been doing the whole way through anyway unapologetically
1: (laughs) no I think you're absolutely right now the consciousness has been raised and it's probably raised my consciousness like a lot of other women we just accepted it was part of the way the world functioned it it really sounds awful but I think it's true we accepted a lot Um, Well, I don't know if we accepted, but we certainly were aware that women had a lesser role in almost everything. Um, But in order to prove otherwise, we worked much harder. And I feel that's still the case. However, all it does is make you better at what you do. So I'm not really complaining. Um, Mm. And as long as you still enjoy what you're doing... Then striving a bit harder to prove things ain't a terrible thing to do. Yeah. Um, but I do feel responsibility. Um, and um, as somebody perhaps better known than a lot of other interior designers, I feel a responsibility to lead in, in terms of behavior culture, the way we think about things, what you say, there's certainly an awareness now today, because we're all being recorded rather like this, you know, (laughs) and, um, and we know what's happened in politics lately, you know, Mm. Um, you really have to behave um, in, in ways that don't affect other people's lives, because the, the world is too small now. Mm. Um,
0: I think uh, also by it being on our agenda and it being on our radar, we are just much more conscious about it Um almost um, un- unconsciously conscious about it in terms of yeah, it just yeah. being something we think about and making sure that, you know, everyone is reflected and, and everyone is represented yeah. in a certain way, um, yeah. but also... Behaviour-wise, I mean, it's just interesting because business... I mean, just the way in which we dress to go to a meeting, for example, you know, everything's a lot more casual now, right? Mm -hmm. But then there's still a line of business and, you know, and I think now it's really... allowed people to amplify their talent as opposed to you know putting up a front and putting a veneer on it really is about what people know and what they Mm -hmm. can offer and bring to the table because as we know in this modern world which is neither good or bad clients are much more demanding lead times are a lot shorter deadlines are a lot stricter and you know it really does prove as to to what you know um for sure so you're with your um Uh, knowledge and experience and you starting off in textiles I just kind of wonder did you never sort of want to go into the fashion lane as opposed to design or do you see them kind of crossing lanes anyway?
1: I love that word I brought up earlier which is lifestyle because in the early 80s having met um, Joseph and Paul Smith they were two very influential people in my life at that beginning part of my career I began to discover that the two could, could overlap and merge and one could influence the other. And up to about that point, interiors and fashion were kept quite separate. And then this lifestyle mood began to evolve. We did it as Timney Fowler quite separately, uh, to uh, very unconsciously. It was just we wanted well I particularly wanted to work in both areas without it being seen as fashion fashion it was about body and covering the body and so the shirt for instance became a very big item in anything we did that wasn't interiors because it was a classical shape it it was for men and women I loved that the scarf Mm. was for men and women that was really important to me I didn't feel Particularly male or female, you know, uh, in terms of the way I worked and the way I thought about product. I wanted it to be a sort of um, just a, a new generic, you know, mm. which was lifestyle, which meant it went across boundaries. I mean, today we'll call it all sorts of other things, but that's how it started. And I love the idea that, yes, you could produce what you might call fashion that I would call just, you know, body uh, body stuff, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and you could also then cover a sofa in the same fabric or perhaps not the same, but different colorway, different scale. You could play around with conversations between things. And yeah. it was a very important, freedom it was rather like you know I'm not I'm overemphasizing this but they it was a freedom like the pill had been in the 60s how you know art schools had influenced everything we had this new thing that allowed us to cross boundaries and today we don't think twice about it we don't Mm -hmm. you know and now we have everybody taking photos and they're not photographers as they were but they are photographers and and in those days fashion was only for fashion designers, yeah, but yeah. actually it's for designers, you know, and more. Um, and today there's even a new story where we're recycling and re-immersing different um, pieces that we're all starting to get involved with fashion as such mm. in lots of ways. So I love that. There's a, been a breaking down of boundaries during this time. There really has. Maybe some areas not as fast as we want them to be like the female thing, not quite, you yeah. know, the diversity thing on the whole with colour and race. Um, it's really I, hard,
0: though, because if you're going to yeah. do it meaningfully, you need to, you know, it's it's a, it's a long process. And I do feel as if mm-hmm. this is the real unpopular opinion. Um, mm-hmm. Society out there, which, you know, is a um, an on-demand society, everyone wants things now society kind of wants those solutions now they want them and and you just can't do that meaningfully because it goes through the whole education process and it really does go far far back but as we were saying earlier what it has done is it really has put the issue on our agenda to the point where we think about those decisions and we think about those in um elements much more than We are, in fact, more now than ever. And that can only be a positive in terms of a long term solution moving forward. Um, I agree. Yeah, for sure. So, um, so from textiles and obviously, you know, starting up and becoming noticed and being asked to commission um, uh, or being asked to commission for for residential projects, um, that's incredible that transition. But the transition that I'm just blown away by is, I mean, it's one thing designing for a client or a brand in that respect, but designing for a celebrity. So you designed Paul McCartney's house, didn't you?
1: Um, well, no, I oh. I designed all the stage costumes and and sets and things for world tours and clothes for him himself. And then I designed some of the other McCartney houses,
0: yes. oh the McCartney houses yes, so, I have
1: done yes, I've worked with the whole family actually so,
0: so I, I'm obviously you've, you've had to get to know them really well in order to design the houses. but I mean, I want to know in terms of like the approach because especially with celebrities, I mean people feel as if they know who they are and you can you know it's like very sort of You don't want to be stereotypical when you're designing the house. So how do you break that down and separate those stereotypes from it being their home and where they relax and where they sort of are are comfortable? What's the process there in terms of design?
1: So I think, firstly, it's about getting to know who your client is, regardless of them being the most famous person in the world. (laughs) That must be a
0: huge pressure. (laughs) No pressure, No,
1: because if you're... No, because if they're great people, and I have been so lucky—I really mean this—to mm. have met some amazingly, not not just important celebrities, but some amazingly lovely people, truly, mm. um, and creatives themselves. And Sam Mendes is another one I would pick out, who is just incredibly thoughtful, um, sharing, um, open, and when you work with people like that, it's not very difficult to start to understand the way they think, so when you're asked to work with one of those names, they obviously come to you in the first place because they like what you represent, and I suppose I represent a more extreme end of creative, I don't follow too many rules, there isn't a formula, I look at people's collections, colours, I turn things on their heads a bit. Um, but yet they will come and some of them, some of these wonderful names will be more conservative in some ways, say about the colour they use or the kind of shapes they like. So it's my, I'm an interpreter as well, that's what I like about being a designer versus a fine artist as I first started, is that I can share and listen, and I grow as well, and I think Mm. um, I learn every day, and you've got to want to do that, and, Mm. um, and feel there's a benefit, which I think there is, as a designer, you learn a lot, and that makes you stronger, and healthier of mind, I feel. Hmm. Um, And um, I sound like a gymnast, don't I? (laughs) Um, (laughs) But no, what it makes you do is question um, why you produce certain things for certain places, for certain times. And as long as you can respond and answer those questions, which I think fine art, I have to say, taught me a lot about thinking and considering why you do something. Mm. Um, then I think there's a philosophy that you start with after getting to know this person who's your client and happens to be well-known and you then build on that. And um, and if they're creative, they're very much into a visual dialogue with you. So mm. it's it's very, it's very natural, actually. Mm. When, when and
0: and I imagine off. as well, it's um, so much of when we talk about inspiration now in interior design, We a lot of designers get their inspiration from outside the parameters of interior design. So fashion, Absolutely. music... You know, art, cultural
1: art, 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 so art is such
2: a big thing, you know.
0: When you're working with these people as clients, they are, that's, you're, you're getting all of that in one. So I guess the inspiration's on, on steroids, really. Um, that's
1: fantastic. And then that takes you forward to the next job in different thoughts. It's opened mm. you out in one way. And so I think a designer is always growing, you know, mentally and visually if um, if they have that sort of um, practice within their work, yes.
0: And then um, one of your other key moments, milestones of many you've had in interior design in your, your career was um, appearing mm-hmm. on Grand Designs with um, mm-hmm. that property, with the water tower in Kensington, which yeah. um, was sold recently for nearly £2 million. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so
2: yeah.
0: what was that like and um, oh, how was I- that? having Ooh. kevin follow your journey
1: <laughs> well he followed it more subversively than you're saying because the clients are always number one within every story but yes it was a huge design journey <laughs> and it was a very <laughs> fast one I talk to, to us
0: about the brief talk to us about um, <laughs> what what projects that was i'll well, tell you
1: <laughs> so <laughs> first of all the project was a wonderful water tower victorian water tower that we um, extended into a home um, and had been derelict for probably forty or fifty years and uh, but had a lot of the integral body in there of the original tower. Um, it was it had we built an extension on the side which included a lift shaft and two levels um, of uh, two new floors parallel to the existing sort of eight story water tower. Um, and wow. in, in those extensions, we did a very big kitchen and above it, a very big sitting room and the rest, the lift shaft and the area linked that to the original water tower. And I think I decided I was approached by people, I lovely clients, actually, again, friends. I sort of knew a little bit, not very well who I knew were doing this project and they kept saying, will you help us? And I kept, I was just always so busy and I didn't think they were serious until it got to the point where they said, we really must have your help. We're on a terrible deadline. And I... And and
0: was the deadline because of the the show, the programme, or was the deadline... So so how does that work then?
1: Well, I think it's probably different for every single programme. But certainly the one I... Was involved in uh, meant that I had to work very fast once I had said yes, and um, there were <laughs> I think there were shoot dates already planned way ahead. So wow. and target, obviously internal targets that had to be reached and.
0: I guess and the good thing though- with grand designs though if you've got a shoot date it's not expected to be complete at that time because it's like halfway through the process. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, but I think there were landmarks of, uh, of staging course. that we had to get to. <laughs> uh, and I just remember on my first day after saying yes I was handed <laughs> I was handed a credit card <laughs> and told just go and do this there's no limit on that card. <laughs>
0: Oh, and my God, that is, that, oh, my goodness, that's the interior designer's, like, dream.
1: Now, I'll tell you that's my nightmare, because of course, <laughs> it actually is a nightmare, because who wants to be responsible for spending the most money in the world? Nobody. Yeah,
0: I mean, it is a bit so, vulgar.
1: <laughs> so all, all you do, actually, is you're much, even more prudent than you might normally be to account for yourself because you've been given this huge responsibility, which which normally, um, I mean, of course I'm always prudent, but normally we have a budget. It's one of the first things we go through, you know, and kind of work within that in some way. And all, there's always give and take, but to be told there's no budget is the scariest thing, really. Yeah. And of course, I think they shrewdly knew, of course, that. I wasn't going to blow the, blow the whole world with that, but that I was going to be very careful, and I was. But it, in some ways also, it, it speeded up the process. There's no doubt about that to because we were right up against it with time. And production sometimes takes a long time, you know, like the stair carpet, which was probably a mile long in the end, that went right up the three floors. Wow. And was woven, you know, that needed to get going. There was lots of things.
0: What was the hardest part of that? Other than obviously sticking to the deadline, um, what, what was the hardest part in terms of the, the area that was most challenging within that that property?
1: Very hard to say, but um one very interesting part for me was this what I would have called a, a beautiful uh concrete structured uh, staircase that ran up through the whole central um tower of the water yes. tower original and it had a hand beaten metal uh, handrail and um and railings and balustrade the whole lot and it was tarnished, and the concrete steps were as well all the way up um they'd lived a life you know mm. why wouldn't they they were they were and they it had been an industrial building nobody needed to clean and polish it every day or anything. Mm. So that was something that immediately the client said, well, we need to replace this whole staircase because look at the condition of it. And it was something that I said straight away. Well, um, I responded in terms of, if we get rid of that, I don't think I'm interested in doing this job because I see it as the core of the mood of the whole tower. and we need to retain that and Mm. i love i love the age and the the story that the hand-beaten rail told it needed Mm. a little bit of cleaning but they they were persuaded fairly quickly and they loved it and it it really is important in that building for me so it it wasn't an issue but it could have been an issue and Mm. it was very important that i think one's job as a designer is to have the responsibility of um, knowing and pointing out what is integral to the nature of any building and what when we go too far say stop you know
0: yeah we can't and do that, that. that's also the role of the interior designer as well yeah. I feel like that's yeah. you know you're, you're yeah. responsible um, in that respect and um, I think so I mean, it's just such a fascinating project, and it must just—you must look back now, although it was a headache at the time in terms of deadline—and just be super proud that you managed to complete that in the in the tight time that you
1: had. It was total teamwork, as all of interior design is. I have to Mm. tell you, you're totally a team, and without you're only as strong as the weakest link, to quote a really strange phrase, but it's true. Um, you know you have to hold together as a team you all have different things to offer the designer isn't necessarily the most important person you're the you are the one who who is the spokesperson for Mm. what went on and and it's the biggest
0: misconception that interior Mm. designers are divas because you can't really you can't really get through life or work by acting that way
1: not Not a good one, no. Um, <laughs> no, honestly, you can't because you you need the whole team and and you have to listen it's a, but mm. the way life goes, isn't it listening yeah, as well sure. as giving out and I think um and that's one very important thing for me um within interiors versus um again, fine art, I compare it to that because that's where I started. And, um, you know, I love the teamwork. I absolutely love it because together as a group of people on an interior project, you come up with some results that on your own, you would never have come up with. Mm. Not completely, but all the the odd things that happen help to grow the results of your your project and um, make it richer. So I love uh, that's one very good reason. I'm glad that I did design and not interiors for the
2: yeah, rest
1: for sure. of my life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, and and Sue, I, I find it so interesting that you've designed these almost like haute couture um, spaces for for you know very well known people, but also just you know clients and residential clients in. in, in in itself um but also you've launched um, the the timney brand and the house of fraser kind of launched that yeah. and so what was it like going from designing these really sort of personal spaces that are very individual very bespoke almost um, mm. and then designing a collection for mass audience what what was the difference there and mm. was the process challenging in a different way and if so what mm. were those challenges
1: what a great question because <laughs> you know it really is because I've also done um, a whole license with Marks and Spencers, which is actually very unusual because they don't use designers names very often at all. But mm. I, I had a, a nice um, whole um, interior thing with them for, for tableware and cook. And, and as you say, with House of Fraser too, which was for home and fashion. And that that was quite unusual. What, well it was what twenty eleven wasn't it? Yeah, and it went on for quite a while. And I think what I got out of it was having to think much more across the board, rather than just for one client, one type of client, um, to look at what appeals to a generic, rather than a single um, mm. name. And and it's quite humbling, I have to say. And I think earlier in my career, I might have, I know that I refused a few of those sorts of things, thinking I've got to build up my brand that might muddy the water a bit. And I think it was perfect to take it on at this part in my career where I feel quite secure about what I represent and what my brand is and what what I do and my own style. And it was again, it's one of those things I'd call a challenge, which I just love addressing and um, looking at a more commercial way to put my style across.
2: Mm. So as
1: long as it's new and refreshing and exciting, I'm I'm. I'm in for it you know I think you not just not hit more. the nail
0: on I think you hit the nail on the head there when you talk about ensuring you have a strong identity and a strong um, self belief because I can imagine mm. also that walking into those meetings you know it could be very easy to be bullied into a certain direction but if you've got a yeah. very strong idea but yeah. willing to you know work with people to collaborate on what that idea then transforms into but if mm. you as long as you've got your personality and you stick to that I feel as if that's yeah. really key for those kind of decisions
1: it is I mean for instance I did um, a line one of my first collections for ms was the um, was tableware and we did a range of ceramics and I and of course my house style my own house style not ones I one I do for clients but when this was under my own brand I used my house style and I did a range of graffiti painted plates and um, and I had, luckily I had enough um, power, I guess, that had been demonstrated um, so that whatever I did and wanted to go go through, did go through. But I know there were lots of points and comments about graffiti, that's not really who our client is. Our client is da-da-da-da. You know, they obviously, they've done a very tight analysis of who the client is and what they want. When when was
0: this?
2: The time. So
1: this was after I I had to finish my I had to finish my um, House of Fraser um, contract. So
0: it was maybe it was just as
1: the, the lines yeah, it, were blurring. Yeah, so it was just at the beginning of I don't know 2016, two thousand sixteen seventeen. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Because like uh, you can't have two brandings. Um, side by side at the same time no no but also I think my point was also
0: because um at that time I guess you know within hotels as well you know brand guidelines were softening across the board because that's what consumers wanted
1: yes absolutely it wasn't that clear at the time but I felt Mm. I really feel that we are ready to accept graffiti as mark making instead of um something kids do when they're naughty and end up in the police station you know so I wanted (laughs) to So I did this and it proved to be their bestseller. And I just, it just taught me a lot as well, you know, that no amount of analysis about who your client is and what they like can foresee something that inspires people in a new way. and, And therefore we mustn't presume to assume. Mm. too much ahead of time and that some risk taking is actually very very good within Mm. design it you know um and look at people like kit kemp you know if you analyze what she does um you might find that that the normal you know percentage of people would say no if you describe that to me i don't think that's going to work at all you look at it and you just know it sings, you know.
2: Mm. And
1: so I don't think we can always assume something before we try it. And that's an yeah. creativity, isn't it, really?
0: That's a really yes. nice lesson because uh, everything we're taught and everything we're told in business at the moment is to gather data and then, you know, the data is yeah. the thing that's going to dictate the result. But actually in design, it also proves that you can, you can learn all of the rules in design, but actually it really is an innate ability and talent, whether you've got it or not.
1: It's also about leadership, I think.
2: Mm. And I,
1: I, I work on this. I'm doing work with the... Royal College of Art in creative leadership um, as a fellow there. And I think it's really important that we try new things and have the confidence to say, no, let's, let's do this. There's nothing like this around. We might be bored otherwise, you know, it's a very mm. funny thing, but you can be visually bored without realizing it till you see something quite stunningly different. And then that's a breakthrough. And then we all begin to understand that until the next thing. So it
0: sets you aside because, you know, there's so much replication happening within this industry and other industries. But it's a really just easy way of making sure that you're offering something unique. Yeah. Not enough unique ideas in the world.
1: (laughs) No, but I think that's a wonderful thing about having been around for a a while. You know, you have a confidence and you've gone through cycles of thought and seen the results of it. Not always good, but you learn and you learn and you learn, and it's wonderful. Mm. So I think huge advantages with sticking around, just doing something, getting knowledgeable about it. And creativity is just like anything else from that point of view. I think you get more fluid and more confident as time goes on. Um, Mm. So older designers can be greater designers, you know, and that's a a good lesson for everybody, you know, stick with it, because there's a lot to be had out of this industry. And working with hotels is another way to develop um, like the store groups, you know, to develop language and visual language and forms of expression that are really important for everybody to feel stimulated by. Mm.
0: Yeah, totally. Um, mm. Sue, I'm so, so delighted that you're going to become a BritList um, judge this year for the BritList Awards 2022, mm. um, which is all about celebrating the best in interior design, architecture, hospitality, products, mm. everything. It's a massive campaign, and we are so delighted to have you on the panel. Um, what, right. Why do you think Britain is such a design hub in itself? It's such a small island. Why? What is it about Britain? <laughs>
1: I know, we are quite amazing, aren't we? I mean, <laughs> for the size and the influence we've had yeah. creatively and visually, say, in the world, Not and, and of course, not just those areas, but those are the ones I know about more. Well, I don't know, we're travellers. We always have been. I mean, we have to talk back history and look mm. at some of the things maybe we're not so proud of, lands we conquered, but and all of that stuff, which in today's world don't go down very well, but they have influenced the way we think globally. We think we kind of break break rules because we can and we do. We haven't Mm. stuck up rather like the opposite of Japan, actually an island that kind of enclosed itself and didn't break out for a long, long time. And although I love Japanese culture, it shows, if you look, we're about the same size as Japan, uh, if not, they're a little bit bigger, but our influence visually has been much greater. And then I think the next thing that's very different about UK is our art school system. Uh, but let's not forget the sixties, because we broke out big time. That was when <laughs> we, that was kind of the modern way to show how a small island can think differently. and. Pop art and women's eman- women's emancipation, and all of the things that happened created a whole bubble of thought and excitement that really hasn't gone away. And it that was is in so music-
0: interesting. Could could you imagine where we'd be now without the sixties?
1: No, I don't. And that's in music, art, products, right across graphics, right across the board. We were so strong, and. I have to say, I'm sure the art school system had quite a lot to do with it then. You know, the Cold Stream started the whole um, art school system um, um, and going back um, to the beginning of the 20th century, I think Albert, Prince Albert, and with the Great Exhibition and Henry Cole um, supporting him did a lot to bring product and interior and design and interior design to the forefront of the world with the great exhibition. So we've got some landmarks of of special things within our history that have influenced our creativity as a nation, I know. Um, We're not afraid to break rules the way some places say like France might be,
2: (laughs) but it's true,
1: it's very true. We, are, we should be proud of ourselves. We, mm. we do great things.
0: Well, I'm, you're just such a credit to the panel. So thank you so much for joining us for that as well. Um, and finally, I just I was talking to you earlier and you don't really consider yourself as a design legend, but I think that that's criminal because you certainly are. Why, why is that?
1: <laughs> oh, God, I, I'm not really. <laughs> I'm just a um, working designer trying to get by. <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, no, no, that's a slight joke, but i I don't know. I'm so involved with the work I do every day. I'm a total workaholic. Tell anybody close to me. Um, <laughs> you know, I have four children, and sometimes they don't see me for quite a while and um that's the thing with
0: creative industries though isn't it it's it's definitely a lifestyle um it
1: is it's night and
0: unfortunately with I mean without being too stereotypical because I'd hate to be but you know what I do see in in the new generation to a certain extent is this kind of entitlement to you know work certain hours and not not go above and beyond and it feels as if Although you know mental health is extremely important, it does feel as if we are losing that kind of drive. But then actually, an, ar- an argument against that is there's an opportunity for there. People who really want it stick at yeah. it, and as you said earlier, you know those those th- that hard work and that passion certainly pays off, and it did for you for sure.
1: Yeah. Oh, I think hard work and passion have to pay off. Where whoever you are, whatever you're doing, it pays off for yourself if nothing else, it may not always, you know, and a lot of um, this idea about what a legend is, is, is down to um, how you, I don't know. I
0: guess mean. it's for someone else to say and not you. It
1: is. I it's mean, it's down
0: to interpretation, can, isn't it? I mean, yeah, I, I, I would argue that you only have to look at the accolades that you have deservedly won in order to call yourself a legend.
1: Oh, <laughs> no, no. That, I mean, you know, it's it's... Just, you've just got to enjoy what you do. And if people want to put, give titles to the kind of person you are outside being a designer, that's great. And mm. I would never dismiss that. But meanwhile, I want to get on with the next job because it's exciting. And And it's it's very obvious
0: that you put so much of your energy into your jobs. Like obviously last year you were elected to be the chair of the Chelsea Arts Club. And I know that, you know, your your work there is extensive. Um, So (laughs) it carries on.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Ask a busy person. But it's (laughs) true. you know you know how to and I love juggling things oh my god I watch myself juggle different jobs the whole time and uh, somehow it comes through you know working tightly to deadlines you know and um, and my and two of my um, sons work in my company and uh, they watch me and say you know "Why, why are you leaving this you know the deadline is only in a couple of days and you know that you are developing the ideas in your head but it's very hard to explain outside and I guess you're talking to someone
0: who wakes up at like two o'clock in the morning and will do his hotel review that's due you know within hours like it it just it takes a type of person I think yeah
1: yeah and you organization yeah, a yeah. <laughs> absolutely. But I, I don't think it's to do with lack of organisation because I'm aware of those deadlines. Yeah, what it, what they are doing, what that time is doing, is is developing. You're sort of cooking the meal that you're going to produce yeah.
0: and letting quietly. it mature, like like a fine wine, letting it mature, yeah. just letting yeah, it letting it simmer. Yeah
1: yeah and you also know that a deadline brings out the best in you and and it does not in everybody not in everybody but if have clients
0: got easier or harder as you've as you've you know become more well known in the industry and got a name for yourself um obviously don't name names don't want to get anyone in trouble Uh, but has it become easier or harder to manage clients expectations so, I for example, like clients, I mean, everyone these days are they are a lot more clued up in design and have sort of well, like a basic understanding say, of what they want.
1: Everybody can be a designer now. It's true, you mm. know. That's why um, I'm a past president of the British Institute of Interior Design, and that's important. That's that that kind of institute gets recognised as being official and professional, and that it shows that we have. St- different standards to people that might call themselves interior designers without any qualifications, so nowadays I'm very hot on that being a qualification, only in order to differentiate a lot of other people who through the internet, through working just on a couple of jobs, can call themselves equally interior designers. So there's a bit of that going on. Mm. But I wouldn't want to put anybody down for being self taught either, you know, so there's a um, as long as they're very good. Um, So that's where it's difficult nowadays, you know, because because it's a lot less official and a lot of general information is available at the click of a button. And yeah. it does lead some people to think they can do it too. And some of them can. Some of them yeah. can. Yeah. That's yeah. the
0: thing. Yeah. But then you're holding the reins. It's important to be steering it into the right direction. Any project, you know, you may yeah. as well have the idea and the concept, but really it does. And actually honesty as well between client and designer. If they've got it right, then yeah, that's a great idea. Amazing. Let's, let's format into something else that we're doing. Or, you yeah. know, that's, that's yeah. your job. That's your world.
1: Absolutely. You can't say no, you must consider because some, some of the craziest thoughts can be, well, the best. Like graffiti
0: thing. on a, on a, uh, yeah. a plate.
1: <laughs> Who knew that was going to slay them? But, you know, there we are. And how, how great that that can happen. You know,
2: yeah, we
1: are not that predictable, thank goodness. The world yeah. isn't totally predictable. <laughs> totally. We love it.
0: Sue, you are just such a wonderful person to talk to i feel so positive now having spoken to you and i can't wait for the process to start with the brit List awards and thank you so much for being on the podcast it's just awesome. been wonderful to speak to you
1: great thank you,
0: thank
1: you hamish you. speak to you
0: soon bye. bye bye oh how amazing is sue honestly i could listen to her all day Not only does she have supernatural talents when it comes to being an interior designer, she's also just a really nice person to talk to and who works hard on every brief she is given for her clients, whoever they are. A few things really struck me from this interview and the first being her opinion on when and when not to listen to data when making creative decisions. It does worry me. We live in a world that is shaped by data. And it concerns me that if we continue to do this, then we will essentially lose the ability to break rules, to go against the norm and create bold, unique statements in design. Kind of what Sue was saying about the 60s. I mean, how fun would that be to revive? Listening to her gut and knowing when to take those risks really allowed Sue to establish her own identity. And that's something that I think as designers we should all take away as well. Also, the other takeaway from the interview was her perception on design and fashion. You've only got to go back into the archives of DesignPod to listen to our episode with fashion designer Jack Irving to really understand just how closely those two industries travel together. And finally, her advice to stick with it. Well, I think that's just so relevant to so many people right now. It's somewhat comforting to give ourselves that reminder in the studio, but also in life. So I thank Sue so much for giving us this episode. And that is all we've got time for today. But join us next week to listen to our next episode. If you don't want to miss out on any of the content, then please feel free to subscribe. And if you enjoy our content, then please share it with your friends and your colleagues. See you next week.